Hello. Hello. Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. You like scary movies? Uh huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Not gonna do the voice. Not gonna <laughs> do what everyone thinks I'm gonna do to start off this mini series. I'm going to keep my voice. And we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I'm trying really hard to fight the voice. <laughs> we're doing a Scream miniseries, as we promised at the end of our last episode. We do want to play a game, as we are in the lead-up now to 2022's Scream, not Scream 5, and not the word Scream with the number 5 as the S, which is what I was an advocate for and thought it should have always been. I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host, slash co-conspirator, slash co-murderer, slash co-killer, also Mike. Hello, Michael. <laughs> That's the best I got. Sounded like a pirate. <laughs> yeah, I think there was an accent seeping through there for a second. So, right, we're not going to do the voice today, but we are thrilled to be covering these movies because they were they were fun rewatches, man. I mean, they're they're not like movies that are I don't know necessarily what we're used to. In what way, there? I mean, we do, we like horror. We we dabble in horror as much as we can. It's yeah, but this is like highbrow horror. This is like yeah, the is. mix in between because this is self-referential horror. I think we've gone like uh, 15 rounds on the So Bad It's Good movie, and mm-hmm. that's some of our best stuff on it's this true. show. But this is, this is definitely fully aware of its schlockiness when it gets there. So you have to read it on another level, and you have to take it very seriously. And yet, it is the furthest cross from like Oscar grab sim- cinema in a way. So this is this is a unique review for us in a tandem of movies that, like you said, this episode is going to go four hours. Yeah, this is definitely <laughs> going to be a, a, a long episode. It's going to be like one of those Stephen King miniseries that ABC used to have on back in the day that was like three and a half hours an episode. But we're going to try to keep it as short as we can. We are covering Scream 1 and Scream 2 in this episode. Our next episode will be Scream 3 and Scream 4 until ultimately we review the new 2022 Scream, which does come out January 14th in theaters exclusively as of this moment anyway uh it remains to be seen if they're going to pivot and drop that on uh, paramount plus as well uh but we will see for now though uh we're going to talk about the box offices the in and outs of screen we have a couple fun segments kind of in the vein of our joker character study and a couple other miniseries that we've done um we're going to be pretty spoiler heavy i think it's the only word of warning mm-hmm. we're going to have uh, a couple laying of the landscape type segments to begin with and we'll let you know definitively when the spoilers are coming but for the majority of these episodes it will be spoiler heavy and spoiler filled and again these movies are 25 years old at this point my god i feel old already so (laughs) if you haven't seen them i mean they're pop culture icons and touchstones i I can't imagine there's anyone out there that we're going to actually ruin scream and scream 2 for but if you do exist just be forewarned this will be spoiler heavy Yes, so let's introduce the movies and let's do this warm-up question, Michael. We have Kevin Williamson sitting at his uh, friend's house, house-sitting literally, watching a show about serial killers, coming up with this idea after he's on the phone with his friend talking about horror movies versus what he just watched about serial killers. So this fledgling screenwriter comes up with this uh, movie idea to, to kickstart his career. They eventually get Wes Craven, Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette. We will get into all of it. I think, Mike, you will get into all of it uh, at, at, at length. 
<laughs> based on this 18-page Google document, which is if you yeah. ever give me shit for a long Google document again. <laughs> well, to be fair, I only do the most important movies and didn't right. really dive into them. So that's right. But we were a couple of impressionable young horror fans uh, at the time of uh, screen. Look, this, these movies raised me. Like this yes. is this is I, I put this text out there between you and I. We put it on our social medias. But like you know, Cinderella was my mother, and Halloween was my father, and then the Scream franchise was like my older brother, my surrogate older brother, that like taught me how to be a man. So this is this is stuff that's near and dear to my heart as it is to many other people out there. I, I think your metaphors are wrong, uh, number one. <laughs> and I think you're like a confused kid who doesn't know his family uh, and who who they are. Like like an, any Italian kid in my family, I don't know who the hell this cousin <laughs> Gina is. Is she my first cousin, second cousin? Is she a cousin, cousin at all? Cousin Ghostface. Cousin Josephine. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Who is she? Anyway, I think... Cinderella has to be your fairy godmother for obvious reasons. Okay. I think Michael Myers has to be your brother, your evil brother, <laughs> and I in the Halloween movies. So who are your cinematic parents? I don't know. That's something to still find out. But there's no doubt in my mind, Scream is your neighbor <laughs> who has interminglings with... Anyway, but Scream has to be your neighbor for obvious reasons. Thought it was going to be my boyfriend, to be honest, because of uh, how yeah, they're treated throughout this. But yeah, all right, I'll, I'll go with that. He could be my neighbor. But this goes into your story that you're going to kind of hint at, and you, that you've told in our top five horror movie experiences episodes, where you kind of watch these movies with your neighbor, and you won renowned as a very young young child amongst all your friends and and your older brother's friends, more importantly. Yeah, this is that was my first exposure to Scream One specifically, and and we were. At my neighbor's house, they had it from Blockbuster, I think. They just rented it, and I think I was 9 or 10 years old when I watched it, and I was way too young. Uh, I had heard about it because my brother had already seen it with uh, a couple other neighbor kids that were his age, and he like was terrified to come home that night. Uh, <laughs> it scared him so bad. He does not do horror well, uh, and I am maniacally obsessed with it, and this is probably <laughs> why. But uh, So he he was like warning me about it, but I felt like a cool kid. I was watching it with like high schoolers and like watching this this movie that i wasn't supposed to be watching and i thought that's like this movie was what high schoolers were i thought okay this is how high schoolers everywhere think and they talk and they're all movie buffs and they all live and die by rules of genre films and this is what i need to do to become cool and so manifest destiny being what it is welcome to mmo years yeah. later <laughs> i am sick and tired of saying this but how right we always were and how right you, right i mean spot on spot on yes but yeah 96 i was 11 or 12 uh i believe i was in fifth grade i was not going anywhere near this movie i was in, i was in religious education i did i had cool neighbors who were my friends who could have brought me onto this but they did not mm -hmm. uh it they did get good critical they really failed you there yeah. yeah they failed me my friends my cool friends uh <laughs> but they probably knew that i wasn't even close to being cool enough uh, <laughs> oh make no standard. mistake i wasn't either i think they just got their rocks off by like knowing they were corrupting a small child yeah but there's a sense and, and and he might be cool, right? They, like they, your friend's older brother. Again, I'm just I'm enabling so much, right? Right. Now, I appreciate but, the effort. Yeah. 
Look, Scream was a, obviously a huge hit. Uh, critical reception, 79% on Rotten Tomatoes. 65 Metascore, which wasn't high enough, in my opinion. Three Saturn Award wins, horror film, actress, writer. Uh, audience reception, just as high, 79%, 7.3 on IMDb. MTV Movie Award for Best Movie in 1996. We had some big box office, though, too, Mike, for Scream. Do me a favor and re- read off some of these weekends and how long it was in in the in yeah, theaters. It's one of the more unique stories in box office lore. So it ended up at $173 million total on a production budget of $14 million. This is for the first Scream. It opened at $6 million, did a $9 million second weekend, yeah. and the third weekend is kind of where it gained traction because it actually went up in its third weekend making 10 million dollars it stayed in theaters from december 20th uh into the summer and it was in the top 10 of the box office into late april and that's kind of one of the the surprising things about this is that it debuted okay then it finally gained traction three or four weeks into theaters where it started jumping up the charts and it's like a true cult classic type thing it's almost like the exact same pattern that halloween uh, shared at the box office decades prior. We have not seen a movie with this kind of release uh, since almost. I, I can't. I mean, maybe maybe The Sixth Sense might might be mm, the only one, but maybe, even that yeah. was much was was much tighter in terms of its overall window. It's uh, also impossible to do in the age of the internet. Like we're never going to yeah. see that again because this was all word of mouth. It was spreading. It was you know around the water cooler and around the high school hallways of people definitely. trying to talk about what was cool and what was going on in the weekends. Definitely around the high school hallways, coming back from Christmas break because this mm-hmm. movie played during that Christmas frame, which was a a risky gamble by Miramax and Dimension Films uh, to to set it. For, for that release strategy. And it didn't work, really, except yeah. it kind of worked by accident because all the kids came back talking about it. So they didn't even take advantage of, like, the every day is a weekend uh, box office day during the Christmas break. I mean, they did well, uh, ultimately, at least towards the end of it with the $9 million second weekend, but they didn't do numbers that we're accustomed to seeing for, for hit movies. This one had to stay and, and run the marathon of, at the box office. It's so weird, too, because of the bidding war that the script went. I mean, it ended up going to Dimension. It ended up going to the, to the Weinstein Company. And they paid such a high price for it. And then they were the thinking essentially was, well, there's no horror movies released out in Christmas. And those fans are going to want something. So why don't we try this? It was like they paid top dollar for it and then treated it as an experiment, which I don't, I don't know that those two thoughts kind of jive together. But I guess you can't say that it failed, even though, like you said, it kind of did at first. It definitely failed at first, but it, obviously, it, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, and it, you can, you know, read the numbers differently. But Scream One, one of those rare movies that 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 catches on and be, and just becomes a juggernaut to the point where they remake or, or they make the sequel the year afterwards. So Scream Two, uh, which had a three page treatment from Williamson at the end of his first script that you're going to get into. Immediately greenlit, rushed into production. So for December 12th of 1997, you have the sequel, which also did very well, but it did it in a much more traditional ramp out. Mm-hmm. 172 overall, 100 million, 71 million, kind of the same as the first one. Higher budget, the first 
first film's budget was $14 million, the second film $40 million. But this was more traditional $32 million opening weekend. It kind of opened, and then it had legs on top of that. Also good reception for Scream 2, 81% Rotten Tomatoes, 63 Metascore, 3 Saturn Noms. Audience score was not quite as good, only like a 57% on Rotten Tomatoes, 6.2 on IMDb. MTV Movie Award winner Scream 2 for Nev Campbell's best female performance but I, I, I don't know if you remember this because you're younger than me even do you remember people being let down or being pretty happy about that film when it came out and, and living up to their expectations I, I am it's impossible for me to be unbiased about Scream 2 uh, Scream 2 was like my movie yeah like Scream I remember being excited to see but because I had that exposure to Scream knowing that Scream 2 was coming I can remember where I was when I first learned that they were making a sequel to Scream 2 I was in uh I was being babysat <laughs> in like 3rd grade I think I was at my buddy Gordon's house his mother was sitting at the kitchen table thumbing through a magazine and she said Scream 2 and I was like yeah that'd be great huh I I actually saw Scream and she was like no they're making it like she showed me the ad the full page ad that was in the magazine and I remember seeing it and I'm like oh my god this is going to be and I just I couldn't get enough of the movie when I watched it and rewatched it and rewatched it so Scream 2 was like it, it it's something very very near and dear to my heart I have no idea how it was received otherwise nor do I much care so this is going to be a new warm-up question that you're not ready for because I, I need to know what I'm getting into here. <laughs> it had the impression on you as a kid. We, we've, <laughs> we've been through this. Now this yes. is the second time. And, and you mentioned you're working into every conversation you can. <laughs> Correct. How many years have you like been obsessed with these movies? How like have you always followed the production ramp-ups to these oh films from three uh, all the way to like, were you crazed for four looking for every oh my God. S- single bit of information you could? And now five, how, how, I mean, has it dissipated since four from four to five? Because we started this, the IMDB message boards, I think were shut down in part because I was using them too much, trying to scour <laughs> for any piece of relevant information that I could find regarding scream uh, four specifically. Okay. Like I, in the lull between streams three and four, I, that and Halloween sequels were all I, like, that's what I cared about. And Freddy versus Jason to an extent, like any kind of those horror tent poles, I just, I wanted to, to consume and I wanted to believe there was going to be traction. And every time you got an update, it was like, Wes Craven's not interested in doing it. Nev Campbell said it's not going to happen. You know, David Arquette might be open to, it's like, God damn it. Just put it together. This can't be that hard. So yes, I was, I mean, even into my twenties, I was like lapping up stuff. The, Am I excited for Scream 5? Obviously, because like I've said for the last however many times we've talked about this, original fans deserve closure with this these original trio. And Scream yeah. 4 doesn't provide that closure whatsoever because I don't think Scream 4 was supposed to be. I think Scream 4 was supposed to be a reboot or a reboot quill at least. Um, reboot, I think, is the pronunciation. Right, that's, that's the, you put the, the, the emphasis on the wrong syllable there by my... <laughs> My pronunciation. But yeah, like that's I, I, I that's what I, I my life. I remember going to like FYE back in the day when yes. I was fifteen and like typing into that like computer there if they had like Scream on special edition or something. Like I it it yeah, I, I've been consumed by it. I'm ready now, like <laughs> as a man in my thirties, and I use that term loosely. <laughs> I'm ready now to to see them, if they want to wrap this up, if like this is going to be our last hurrah with these three, I'm okay with that. I've made my peace with it because I don't think Sidney Prescott can handle much more mentally <laughs> and believably. I uh, 
I hope you're wrong. I hope she goes for another five movies. I do too. <laughs> but uh, that's why we're doing this. We're doing this obviously because we got this, you know, fifth film. Why? Why is it not called Scream Five? By the way, do, do you know this? Why? Kevin is it... Williamson gave a quote, and he said it was just never in the cards. Like he never thought the studio was going to do it because. The, everyone thought it was just so obvious to call it Scream, and he thought there was some trepidation on the studio's part to, like, say this is another sequel, because I guess there's some, like, hesitation, like you get into Friday the 13th, Chapter 7, the Freddy, or, you know, the Freddy's Dead, Jesus Christ, way to cross movie franchises there, Mike. You try, you know, the the final chapter, Friday the 13th, I think it's, like, Chapter 4 or 5 or something like that, and then you could keep making more of them, so I guess they just wanted to, a way to get around that, Um my question, though, is what's your attachment to this franchise? Well, I, I didn't come to this uh, these two movies until a little later, but they they did mean quite a bit to me because I've always loved whodunits. I've always loved mysteries. I used to listen to audiobook mysteries, uh, you know, at, at night or in the mornings with my dad, you know, going to going to school, getting dropped off or whatnot. We had a long commute uh, during these years, and we would be listening to, like, Michael Crichton or what, whatever, you know, yeah. uh, uh, it just named Harlan Coben, et cetera. So, and Patterson had a couple good, you know, he, he had a run there with like kiss the girls and stuff, some effed sure. up good stuff. So I was all about this genre. And then when you fused it into slashers, I had just watched Halloween, like uh, in my eighth or ninth grade year and going into 2000, that was my sophomore year in high school and I had watched a few slashers. I'd, I'd seen the the kind of the mainstays for the most part, and I I ended up getting really excited for Scream Three, which came out in two thousand. Mm-hmm. I watched the first two Screams, and I fell in love. I rewatched them. I remember bringing both of those back late to Blockbuster because I just had to rewatch them <laughs> uh, both, kind of like Very in this cool. scenario where we both watch we both watched both movies twice before this recording. And yeah, I've watched four movies in 2022, like I told you so far, and it's <laughs> Scream one twice and Scream two twice thus far. Yeah. So I mean, we I I loved to study these films back then, but what was even cooler is that they kind of got me watching so much more horror, which is. You know, what Scream did for the entire genre. We saw the genre dying. If you watch any making of, uh, if you listen to any oral history like The Ringer just did, they'll talk about the horror genre having trouble and Scream giving that jolt in the arm uh, to, to make it rebound in a huge way. And this movie being so, you know, callbacky and homage filled. Uh, is is exactly the, the what, what they needed as a yeah. genre. So again, we're gonna remind people this is our second spoiler warning. Now we're gonna kind of dive in to the plots of Scream One and Two. I know we kind of were spoiler ish heading into now, but yeah, these this movie, I, you know, I would not have agreed to this if if uh, if I knew what you were gonna prepare. Number one, no, I would, <laughs> I would not have agreed to this if, if these movies didn't mean a lot to me because like you try to push a couple other series on me one or time one or two times and i'm like eh, nah, veto <laughs> no but this, i love the screen movies i love the screen movies growing up uh at least you know when i was finally uh i wasn't like an eight-year-old superstar like you i was like, in in high school saying <laughs> you're giving me way too much credit over that but yeah I saying, hear you. <laughs> no but you saw it much younger than me i was like uh, you know well that's just bad parenting mike <laughs> 
I saw I saw it when I was a sophomore in high school. I watched all I watched the two, and then I remember it was a big deal us getting into Scream Three, even though we were still kind of underage, and we did. So you yeah. saw it in theaters. Yes. Oh, so cool. That was cool. Cool, cool, cool. Very and cool. It was, and it was and it was really good too. It was really we loved it in theaters, and I loved it two nights ago when I watched Scream Three. So that'll be a fun episode next. But okay, spoilers ahead. Yeah. So uh, let's dive right in. Right. Let's go to our first named segment. Who's there? We're going to discuss the innovative Act 1 setups of both Scream 1 and Scream 2. Nothing but spoilers from this point out. Uh, and there's we discussed a little bit at length in setting up this episode and this miniseries. Like, what are we going to do with homages? Did we want to give them their whole segment? I guess we've divided them up a little bit into a couple different segments because homages are kind of tough to, to come by and exactly tough to, to figure down. But there's one homage that is very relevant, very obvious, spoken about at length and was kind of the template and the jumping off point for how and why Scream revitalized and reintroduced and basically turned the entire horror genre on its head. And it's a case where the star of the movie, the casted star of the movie, picked up what the writer was putting down in the script as just an homage that she wanted to carry to the next level. So Drew Mm -hmm. Barrymore, she deserves much more credit for this psycho effect, for... The fact that we are kind of doing away with the most famous cast member, Drew Barrymore, wasn't the super duper star she'd become, but she was the biggest star kind of in this production. She was, you know, the the selling point for someone like Wes Craven to get involved for that matter. And she decides, Drew Barrymore decides on playing Casey, the opening girl on the phone in the first five minutes, the first act surprise instead she of playing Sydney the main yeah. character for the rest of the film and this kind of lays the foundation for the entire franchise being that immediate homage to the OG again I get it peeping tom but the OG in terms of what sparked the popularity of the slasher right. genre in psycho yeah, and I think Barrymore's fingerprints on this franchise go even beyond her choosing to play Casey Becker, too, because reportedly the only reason Wes Craven agreed to take the directorial job yeah. after having passed on being offered it multiple times already was because of Drew Barrymore's attachment as Sidney Prescott. And the story goes that five weeks prior to filming, Barrymore switched up roles, and even in spite of that, Craven agreed to stay on But had Barrymore chosen to be Casey Becker from the start or just avoided the project entirely, who knows what would have become of this movie and thus this franchise. Uh, I I think you're absolutely right. Not enough credit is given to her to not Mm. only, like, see the importance of what that can do to have her attached in that role and be killed off in that manner and that early on and, and all that that went with it. But credit to her and credit to Wes Craven for going with the flow, for lack of a better term. Like, he's... Signed on because one of a huge star at the time is going to be his leading lady, and she says, No, I'm not going to do that. And he's like, Okay, I still owe it to horror fans to make this the best movie I can do. Wes Craven definitely embraced, he definitely embraced the project after oh, yeah. a certain point, which was really cool to see with all the hesitation. With the Bette Midler from the musical movie we watched, what was that? I can't, I can't, I can't. Oh, okay, I will. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't dare go on stage. I wouldn't dare. Oh, okay, I'll do it. Fine. For the Boys, was that the name of it? For the Boys, like that? Yeah. yes. Uh, that that old show folk. 
that same hesitation. reference you get in every Scream retrospective for the boys, Bette Midler. Yep. Bette Midler. Well, this is an Oscars <laughs> podcast doing a Scream <laughs> retrospective, so we're, it's going to be some of that. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's fascinating to see how you got the A-list director because of the A-list star, or the, at least the next level star that he wanted to work with. Mm-hmm. And then he goes along with the fact that... Uh, it this you know she wants to do a lesser role so that's a huge move but it's it's such a cool twist and it carries through kind of the to the next kill with uh principal fonzie and, yeah and henry winkler which apparently all thanks to that goes to bob weinstein I, and the story there goes that he thought that there was too long of a lull in the script where no action happens and nobody is murdered hmm. so it was a rewrite getting that principal uh fonzie death murder scene uh, at the suggestion of Bob Weinstein, so no red flags whatsoever in that family. No, none, none at all. Uh, <laughs> we're, we'll talk more about these idiots in the next episode. But yeah, I mean, most of the the interference coming from Dimension was not the greatest. You know? And yet, I mean, one of the hallmarks of these movies is that, like, when things went wrong, and I'm going to talk about it all throughout right. this episode, things that went wrong end up going right for Scream and Scream Two, which kind of helped cement its legacy in the weirdest way. Happy accidents and, yeah, and yeah, overcoming it because it's just a good script and a good crew and all that. But, uh, yeah, I mean, this was one of his better decisions in that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the brother of the devil, Correct. not not the devil Correct. himself. But, all right, Scream 2 kind of follows the blueprint to an extent. I mean, Omar Epps was a pretty burgeoning star at that point. This was after Major League Two. Jada Pinkett was was just catching on after the Nutty Professor. There, Marine and Phil. I think I think what was cool about both these scenes though, Mike, is that they were at the time very unique, very innovative. The call coming not from the inside the house, but coming from this new technology, the cell phone mm-hmm. <laughs> outside the doors, working that into a horror concept was was brand spanking new. And then having uh the movie theater kill of Scream 2 with all this meta-social criticism coming from this self-reflective writer who's who's allowing Jada Pinkett to call him and the previous film out for so many issues that the genre has, but also issues yeah. that the first film had in terms of representation. So that's somewhat healthy. I mean, they, they don't exactly fix it on the one hand for a slight criticism that we cannot avoid. But. No, but it, that was also part of Jada's doing, if you believe the uh, the reporting at the time. She wanted to be killed in the gnarliest way possible, and that's wow. how she agreed to take the role. So, Well, again, it worked like a charm, and it does, Absolutely. And it does raise the stakes, but it also is pretty shocking. Uh, and it, and it and it, ju- it doesn't just it doesn't just criticize the film for for the culture issues. It criticizes like the hoopla over the film that all these fans are cheering for the kill it's, in the movie theater it, for, for the for a nineties movie too. The yes, they don't cure all of society's ills, and they are victims of their time frame in a lot of ways, like you just touched on. I absolutely agree, but there is signs of progressivism, certainly more so than you got in a lot of other franchises, horror and non horror alike at the time yeah. and i think credit should go to west craven for that and kevin williamson quite frankly i will say one of the uh one of the benefits of having such a strong opening and have the marketing revolve around drew barrymore is that you could do what we've always loved a movie to do is market the film on one of the first scenes we are really happy yeah. with spider-man no way home being able to market that tom holland dr strange uh back and forth we we're really 
uh, happy with the Inglorious Bastards marketing back in the day. And this is another example of that, where that, what's your favorite scary movie scene, is the the scene that is marketed uh, primarily and almost exclusively back in 96. I remember that much. Yeah, I think that's a great call by you. And again, it's like every little decision that needed to be made ended up being the right one in some way, uh, at least in terms of having this movie in this franchise be poised for the success that it would later go on. As far as the setup for Scream 2, you know, Scream 1 starts off with the infamous phone call. Scream 2, we don't hear that Roger Jackson voice until about 40 minutes into the film. Yeah. Scream Run relies on new cell phone technology. You made this point already. Scream 2 relies on new audio-visual technology. Both movies rely on setups and takedowns of the horror-slasher genre and criticisms and conventions of horror and the way in which it's consumed as a concept in total. If you want to tell me Scream 2 was a rehash or just a further world-building of Scream 1's script, fine. I disagree, personally, but fine. But Scream 1, look, I tweeted this last night and I'm going to expound on it as well. Scream 1 should have been taken way more seriously and at least been in the conversation for a couple Oscar categories, in my opinion. Namely, supporting actor for Matthew Lillard, who was... Oh my God! Yes, he's over the top, but that's but Stu is over. Oh, the top. he is he over the top? But, is that, he over, but that's Stu. He I mean, should have been put into a catapult and 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 catapulted out over the top of Hollywood. He was so over the top, Mike. Wahoo! Tell me, tell me another actor who can pull that that off and make that character that believable in that concept. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah, it is. And <laughs> that guy. I hope he wasn't, but my goodness, uh, was he off unhinged. And if you watch him talking about it now, he's like, I don't know what I was doing. <laughs> I was an asshole kid. <laughs> I still say he should. I don't know that he should have been nominated, but he should have been in the conversation. If you don't agree with me about Matthew Lillard, I think you can at least say that the original screenplay should yes. have been in the conversation. Well, that's what I was going to retort. I was like, I, I 100% agree with you on the original screenplay. And it's got such layers to it and and, and layers of sophistication because this is a guy who loves the genre very clearly and wants to quote unquote transcend the genre not uh, but not really transcend the genre he wants to embrace the genre Yeah, he wants the genre to be respected and give the respect that it's due because it's not that unique of a mix necessarily and i'll get into that in a second but i just think the balls and the audacity of making such a high concept script of having copycat killers base their murder sprees on those not of real life serial killers or fake serial killers from the film but instead on slasher film slasher films and the murder sprees in slasher films of course the most well-known ones halloween etc so that is just that is brilliant because if i mean if you're trying to revive the genre and you got dimension films which is brand new in the space at that time, there's no better way of doing it than having something like this. And then mixing in the whodunit elements and then you combining the genre of a whodunit with a slasher, with a, a straight horror movie. Yeah, I mean, there was, there's certainly certain rules the screenplay chose to abide by and then kind of flip on its head. And that's the next segment we're going to talk about here. There are certain rules one must abide by in order to survive a horror movie. We're going to discuss screen meta narratives and plot lines throughout. Yeah, it is that whodunit slasher, uh, and these two genres actually work pretty well together, and they worked together for a, kind of the original movement of 
the slashers, uh, and I'll get into that in a second, but they kind of lost their way, this genre, in the late 70s, 80s, the more mm-hmm. lucrative years from Halloween on down. And that's you know a testament uh, of, of Halloween's success in many ways because you had this shape, this faceless, you know, na- well, not nameless killer, but you had this madman and monster, pure evil, and they investigated that more than they did the kind of the jalos and the the psycho and the, the where the genre was going initially of caring about if not the why the who they always cared about the who in the slasher genre at the very least in yes. those early years and it was kind of a the who done it aspect added to that layer of intrigue because you know if you take off michael myers mask I don't think any of us actually ever wanted that. I don't think, you know, yeah. it doesn't really matter. We're not going to see that and be like, oh, it's him. If you take off Jason's mask, which they did, it's just, how do you, what's the payoff? It's just going to look grotesque. That's the problem with showing the monster a lot of times in these horror movies is that they're never going to really live up to what you've built up in your head. But with something like a whodunit, if you can add that into the mix, I mean, that's a whole other, it keeps you guessing the entire movie long and it adds so much rewatchability. Because you have to go back and see, well, was the director on top of his game? Did he do this in this scene? Does that mean something now? Blah, 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 blah. Um, As far as the motivation of the killers, it it was interesting listening to Williamson talk about the the bidding war process because he said he got two major notes um, from Mm -hmm. different studios during the bidding war, and they both had to do with the killer motivations for Scream 1, and those being that the characters should have a motive tied to Sydney directly, Mm-hmm. And then a different studio said there should be no motive whatsoever for right. the killers. And they would just be more imposing if they were just pure evil going maniacal. And Williamson, to his credit, said he tried to combine both sides of that coin and have this loose structure where there was a tying to Sydney between her mother and Stu, uh, Billy's family, I should say. And also, these are just obviously two psychopathic men who are living and dying with movies. But yeah, but as we're both saying... This is a meta criticism of the genre itself. The actual story and the story structure is something that exemplifies what the genre is going through. Uh, Like you're saying, is it Halloween or is it somewhere in between or is it the why done it that where you need that personal motive? Uh, Look, I think the genre was having success with the faceless and the, you know, we don't need to know. Black right. Christmas, for that for, for that matter. I mean, Dress to Kill played some dirty tricks. Friday the 13th was kind of in the middle. But I think all of these movies recognized what they were. And, and going back to the Dario Argento Jalos uh, of the 70s, they all knew that the mystery had to still be in service of what, it was still about and that's the horror so like a slasher plot line it's a series of murders that ultimately threatens the protagonist it either you know casts the uh, circle and closes in on the protagonist or it increasingly threatens the protagonist with more dangerous confrontations one after another in halloween you lead to the final confrontation in something like scream sydney gets increasing levels of antagonism so whodunit plots they typically have a, a similar sequence where it's a process of elimination of the suspects mm. to keep you invested in the mystery. And some whodunits build towards the, oh my God, brain short fuse, everybody must be a suspect at the end. And some of them, you know, literally 
one after another, you eliminate all the process all the, of elimination. Yeah, yeah. so it, that that's really fun to have a slasher film, which again you have the similar plot line mix mix in with the who done it, and it's like I said, it Dario Gento did it for years with with Chris Bird with Crystal Plumage and. Was it red, blood red? No, I'm I'm deep red. Excuse me, etc. And as far as the process of elimination versus everybody's a suspect, I mean, Craven does that masterfully here because I, I, I the first time I watched this, I had no idea who the killers were. Right until no, the, until neither. the reveal at the end, and I think that's the most fun aspect of a whodunit. I like having the options and trying to piece together the clues, and then you don't really know until the reveal. Well, I think the fact that Williamson boils down what makes a great whodunit is the fact that you get this false alibi for the killer at some point. At some point, the audience is chasing information. They're chasing the plot, which is the fun of it. Mm. So you have to send them astray with some kind of false information. So the fact that there are two killers for Scream 1 provides this false alibi in a couple different ways, but the two killers itself is a false alibi built into the plot. So Billy's character is protected by the fact that Stu could, you know, just subvert our assumption that Billy is the only killer. So it exonerates Billy falsely. So Mm -hmm. he is is this red herring uh, placement in the plot. And yet he's, of course, the killer all along. So he's in jail getting exonerated in our, in the audience's eyes by the cell phone records, by the fact that she's getting a call during the right. his, his incarceration. And then, of course, uh, he's fake stabbed by the end of it, leading to like the the next phase of process of eliminating either Stu versus Randy in one more showdown. But I don't. I don't remember, and I watched this twice again. Did because we were still wondering about Gale and Dewey at a certain point because they were off on their own, mm-hmm. but they but they were getting attacked at some point. So that I don't know if they like they might have been eliminated much earlier. I'm kind of forgetting this in, plot in, a in Scream bit. In, you, uh, in Scream One. You're talking about in Scream One because I watched Screams Two, Three, and Four. I couldn't resist. I could have just focused on Screams One and Two like you and be disciplined as a critic, but I had to watch Scream Three and Four the last two nights. So now I, I'm like getting a little muddled. I think Gail is. I mean, she does everything to at least suggest that she's not involved at all, in that she sets up the camera at the party and she's only worried about like her Pulitzer. She's very career driven, et cetera, et cetera. Dewey's like, had Dewey been the killer at the end of Scream One, I don't think it would have been all that surprising, except that he's kind of by the time he finds. Sydney's father's car on the side of the road we kind of get the idea that he's an innocent one and then finally he's attacked right. at, at the end of the movie anyway so we know for sure by then it's not him but yeah I mean going into Scream 1 your first viewing of Scream 1 you don't know that this is like a trio of heroes mm-hmm. you know there's one final girl and you're suspicious of everybody else and I guess for the sake of this discussion I think going into 118 scene 118 which was the long 40 minute finale at the uh at the house, the house party of Scream 1, we did not eliminate Dewey until 
that point where he's on the road with Gale, which happens towards the middle of the party. So it's like 20 minutes into the finale. And you're kind of expecting a, a heel turn, too, because things are going too... He's the one that's softening the hard exterior of this career-driven newswoman who's, like, ruthless in her own sense. Yes. He's the, you know, he's the one making her fall for him, and they're, they're getting lovey-dovey. You're kind of expecting him to actually be evil at some point. And wherever the camera's eyes are, that in a, in a whodunit raises suspicions. Yeah. So it's it, it's a alarm bell. And he's so for good. Us. Craven is so good at that too. He like has these little moments where there'll be two characters talking, and the camera will just go to a still on Kenny to can the cameraman for no reason, mm-hmm. just to get him in the scene and in your mind. He does that so many times throughout both of these movies too. That like he. He's great. At, he might be better at who done it than he is even at straight horror. It, it really works, and you're right. I was totally spun around like a top when I first watched this movie, and I'm in in awe of it now at how they worked all this stuff in. As for Scream Scream Two, Mike, we just have a good old red herring mix up on top of 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 the setup from the first movie because again we have a built in prime suspect because of the boyfriend jerry mcconnell who i believe is the son of dermot mulroney so i i think it's a stage name and his real name is kermit mulroney just such slander of tomcat star jerry o'connell going on here i won't stand for it is it dylan mcdermott's son (laughs) they look very alike so i mean kermit mcdermott I won't stand for this. Look, but I think both movies, you have a prime suspect. In Scream 1, you have Billy. And in Scream 2, I think you have two prime suspects. You have Cotton and you have Kermit, the boyfriend. (laughs) And that's that's intentional, too, because, look, the... The bloom is off the rose. Scream 1, we know there's two killers, so by the time you're going into Scream 2, you're kind of expecting there to be multiple killers, and Wes and Williamson know that, and they're, so they're they're playing with your expectation of having two killers. I mean, expect again, I think Craven is just a genius when it comes to whodunit more so than even yeah. horror, because he subverts every step of the way, even if you're talking about the rules that Randy lays down. I know I'm, I'm going back a little bit, but the rules Randy lays down in Scream 1, yeah. Randy doesn't talk about how you can't have sex, until immediately after the scene that Sydney finally decides to have sex with Billy. Yeah. Right. Well, they right? timed it real well. Like, like he does this intentionally. He, he The screenplay does this numerous times. Sydney mocks slasher movies for the pretty girl always being dumb enough to run up the stairs when she should be going outside. And then she's immediately attacked during that conversation and she chooses to run upstairs instead of going outside. You mm-hmm. can't ever drink or do drugs and expect to survive a horror movie, but the climactic scene of Scream 1 happens at a house party where everybody is drinking underage and a vast majority of them live to tell about it. Right. So, like, by the time Randy reveals these rules, when it comes to rule number one of Sydney having sex and so she's eligible to die now, we're rooting against Randy at that point. Like, we're hoping that Stu comes back and is alive after saying, I'll be right back. Like, this is just such, it's such little pieces like that that just toys with your emotion that and he continues to do in Scream 2. And that's the necessary correction of the genre, which is why I think Williamson is is writing such a refreshing script to us at the time. And to kind of modernize all of the, you know, the the tropes of the genre and the, the and the rules of the genre. They're breaking the rules of the genre, and they're also following some good old fashioned whodunit rules uh, that 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 really work. You know, I mean, again, you have you have the prime suspects, and then you kind of have the usual suspects of the lineup, right? And and Scream One, and the and the lineup, you're kind of 
eliminating one at a time. It goes from Dewey and uh, it goes from the principal to Dewey and Gail to uh, Stu and Randy and, and back to Billy and Stu again. And mm-hmm. then in in two, you have a third layer of suspects because again you have the main two with Cotton and uh, not Billy but uh, Kermit, the boyfriend. <laughs> Sorry, I Derek. didn't write down his Derek. I wasn't far off. Anyway, that's fine. <laughs> then you have the usual suspects coming back. Do they? They all have access to grind. Randy, uh, Dewey, Gale, uh, certainly Cotton, uh, and then you you add a couple into the fray, uh, like like Mickey and, and and the and the roommate there, where maybe they I mean they're included in the new lineup kind of in, in a way. But then you a third layer under the radar. You have Debbie. You have the, the real killer and you have many you know the cameraman you can include many into this third layer of suspects which ultimately because of the first movie which came back to the prime suspect and one person from the lineup you can distract the audience from the third layer from the under the radar's third layer of suspects yeah. and debbie because you could play so many games with the prime suspect is he or isn't he kermit mulroney <laughs> Is he or isn't he the killer all the way up to the end? And then you could keep playing games with the lineup. And on a meta level, too, the casting. I mean, never mind how these might be two of the most amazing casting jobs in terms of getting these people before their stars all took off simultaneously. Yeah. But, like, because of the success of Scream 1, everybody wanted to be part of Scream 2. And so you have Josh Jackson playing this bit role. And you have yeah. Portia de Rossi playing a small part. And Rebecca Gayhart playing a small part. And you're like, well, wait a minute. They're famous enough to be the killer. So are they going to be... You're like, I know they didn't have a big part in this movie, but are yeah. they going to be revealed and blah, blah, blah. So, like, they, by the time Scream 2 rolls around... It's just basically a puppet master having fun at our expense. But I also think the greatest trick the devil ever pulled in Scream 2 uh, was twofold. And one of them was due, again, to, like I said and alluded to, like a mistake that ended up going in Scream 2's favor. The first trick was the double reveal, because not only is Debbie Salt Billy's mother, but also the meta reveal on us as the audience that Sydney and Debbie were truly never in the same scene together at the same time. And Mm. that's immediately increases the rewatchability of Scream 2 to me because you have to go back and see if Wes Craven was on top of that. Was there any way? Of course, Sydney's going to know what Billy's mother looks like, even if she did have a makeover or plastic surgery. But on a more realistic and true-to-life level, the second is... It's alluding to Scream's luck as a franchise because the original framework for Scream 2 was this 30-page treatment that Williamson had attached to the Scream 1 script. And now there's all sorts of arguments as to what leaked online the, the treatment leak online did a full script for scream 2 leak online it, it, something leaked online yeah and it involved this overly convoluted twist on top of twist ending that ultimately would have led to cotton weary and sydney simultaneously murdering one another the ending we got in the actual film with scream 2 is infinitely better than the original ending reads on paper but would we've even gotten it if the script were never leaked probably not would we get a scream in 22 2022 if that script is never leaked probably not And here's where the devil really rears its ugly head here is that Cotton should have been the killer. Like, Cotton should have clearly been... I don't think he was set up as a red herring throughout this entire movie. Because if his character through these two movies is just given shit to eat... (laughs) At every turn, like he is given, he's embarrassed in public. He obviously serves a prison sentence for a a crime he didn't commit. He's embarrassed publicly on camera by Sydney. He's arrested again at the library by Sydney. Like Cotton should have killed Sydney at the end of this. 
But because of that script making, I think he was set up ex post facto as like the ultimate red herring in this. Yeah, I think the first movie, again, sets this up perfectly in the sense that Billy was, you know, someone everybody was looking at. And then the screenplay was looking at so early and everybody's looking at Cotton with this screenplay so early he's almost too obvious to be the killer and maybe that's what they decided maybe like you're right that they, they had him initially and they were going to play the same trick on us again and real maybe that's the uh audacity of the second movie play this i mean the sequel do the same thing only better and mm. only different uh and that would have if it worked it would have even been a higher degree of difficulty but the fact that it is a misdirect here is, is an easy setup, you know, like A to B, one to two. And it still works, I would say, because I, I remember watching Scream 2 completely turned around, had, having no idea who it was going to be back in the day. Well, Mickey being off screen for the last 45 minutes before the reveal yeah. really helps. I mean, Debbie Salt is only thrown into that scene at the the payphone at the very end. It helps for continuity's sake for when the two killers are in contact with each other, but you don't really see her. You don't really recognize that she's going to play any kind of prominent role. And again, you're thinking of Cotton. You're thinking of, is it going to be a double dip with a boyfriend? Or is the boyfriend going to be too obvious because they already did that with Scream 1? There's just so many. It's it, it's purely Williamson and, and Craven playing with their emotions. But again, I think the, the chance to rewrite the ending made this movie even better. And it doesn't happen without the advent of the internet and without somebody leaking that script online. I will say this, though. I do think it's more impactful for a story if one of your prime suspects or more of your principal characters turns out to be someone who surprises you as an audience member. And I think the first movie has that on mm-hmm. the second movie where the fact that it's Billy and Stu and Stu's having the meta conversation with Randy the whole movie which adds to you know the all, all things merging together in these weird A and B stories, right? I, I agree that I think Mickey was a weaker choice of the four, but is does your perspective on that, is it saved at all by the reveal that it's not only Debbie Salt, but that she's actually Billy's mother? Yeah, no, it works. It ties in, and I, I just think it's, it's a little bit post facto, deus ex machina. Is it earned from the start? Yeah, they write away any objections that I'm raising right now because Dewey especially is right on. Mm. This M.O. from the beginning of, mm-hmm. of Scream 2 where he's like, look at Sid, it's going to be someone you've always known. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, he basically points, profiles the point. person who's going to do it. So I think there's enough there, but it, it was extra satisfying and extra scary when Stu and Billy were doing what they were doing at the end and their heel turn at the end and when they stab each other at the end because we got to know them the whole time. I agree wholeheartedly and i think that hope is kind of why you were still afforded i mean i didn't trust that it wasn't going to be dewey or gale like they weren't going to just snap and i know there was a big push online uh, going into like scream three i think that everyone was like well maybe it's finally going to be sydney she's just not going to be able to take anymore so yeah i i think that the familiarity with the characters breeds at least in a slasher concept for when you're viewing the film that like oh this could happen i could talk myself into this being believable with any of the characters yeah, now that's the fun of it, and that's the uh, that's the testament to the writing. I mean, mission accomplished for Kevin Williamson. This is very smart writing, uh, both films, and I love the, the the tricks that two plays because of one that one played him first. So, all right, let's kind of focus in on Sidney Prescott here. 
I'm Sidney Prescott. Of course, I have a gun is my quote for this what segment. What a great where we trailer t- line. Where we talk about the Scream Queen and how she's anything but, quote, a favorite little victim. Mike, I, th- I want to draw attention to her physicality. And I think this is very important for Scream Queens. She is not dainty. She is not fainty. She is not somebody who is barely escaping or you're kind of looking at her athleticism. You're like, this would never work. I mean, you got this this killer who's jumping over here and jumping over there and chasing her down. No, she pulls off all the physicality because she was a great athlete. She's a She was a professional ballerina growing up in New York. She is making all these ducks and darts and dodges of the knife from master shots, from pulled back, you know, camera angles because she can pull it off with, you know, all the moves she's making. That baseball slide she does in the bathroom to go under Ghostface lunging at her is like, I've seen MLB players that don't yeah. do it that like it was picture perfect and seamless. And I think it was actually Nev Campbell. I don't think it was a stunt double, but if it was credit to whoever it was, but I don't think so. Yeah. I think, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, she's, yeah. and, and this is something again, I like, yes, I'm gushing over Wes Craven. Believe me, I'm not in love with everything Wes Craven has ever done, but he's so good in this franchise and so many steps along the way. I don't think he gets enough credit for, and it's kind of him writing the wrong that he, I think he did with Heather Langenkamp's character throughout the nightmares that he directed. But the evolution of Sidney Prescott is something that should be admonished and admired by what Wes Craven does. And I don't think he gets enough credit for it because he turns her like, she's never been this frail little thing. Like you're saying, never, but he turns her into this wholly capable, fully agent sized, badass who's capable of dealing with anything that comes her way. And you see the evolution come in every movie. And she's almost got to go the other direction, kind of like Galen Dewey that I think we're going to get into more in three and four. But she's got to go the other direction. And she's got to use more of her wits down the line in this film and in the series because she uses her physicality so much early, Mike. I mean, she's she eludes the killer twice with at the home and then the school. And then, again, she eludes the killer by with the big set piece of going out the attic door of the of the house in 118 and get and getting free that away so these are three just near escapes because of her wiles and her ability her capability and and look at the evolution of her just between one and two so one she's got that fear in her eyes she's like terrified of everything she doesn't know what's the right decision to do but she's relying on her athleticism and her intuition and, and it saves her two she's much more cerebral and thinking about everything, yeah. maybe to a fault, but how could you not overthink if you're actually her who have been through what you've been through in the first movie and you're dealing with it again? But two, we get this weathered veteran, Sydney Prescott. She's not the old pro yet, but she's been through this before and she's evolving. She's, I mean, I think you could only go one of three directions anyway between one and two with a character like Sydney, especially in the 90s. Mm-hmm. You either become a coward, which could work. Nowadays, for a horror sequel, I think it does open up some avenues of storytelling, but likely wouldn't have worked at all in a Weinstein Helm 90s horror sequel. So that was probably out. She can snap and lose her mind completely, which I think they dangled. And like I just said, there was this like fervor on the Internet to want to see to always have her as a suspect in these scream sequels as maybe she finally did that and was a killer. But they went in the direction that they should have gone in, which was just her being this badass i mean she's not going to lose her mind she's not going to be give you this uncomfortable viewing experience she's going to be a true heroine yeah i think her courage and her cleverness 
uh, on top of uh, the the athletic ability is what really and, and her poise in these situations. Like she is, she is the uh, the character that I think you know later iterations of her looks on looks back at in pride yeah. for how she you know survived and, and all of the criticism she gets she refutes, which is what's so cool about this this uh this script because you do have that bathroom scene where the people are kind of setting her up for the rest of the movie those two girls the cheerleader and the other girl and, and they're having an argument which is great have characters have arguments good writing especially in a movie especially in throwaway lines and then she's punching gail weathers and she's slapping gail weathers at the beginning of both movies yeah. so she's a fighter from the beginning and i do think it is essential to refute the sexualization of these characters and even more the biblical just anti-sexual you know uh, just fire and brimstone against female characters in these in this genre leading up to this to refute that because Billy takes away her sex drive and ultimately breaks her down into a conquest and that is supposed to be her death sentence but of course it is the opposite yeah. in this film and and that is cool and it's I mean, my God, for a 1997 movie, 1996 movie, like that's incredibly progressive. I think for the time, it's I, saying, you yeah, it's saying a big anyway. f u. It's yeah. saying a big f u to how females were treated in the genre going, going back. And you know, is it low hanging fruit? Is it obvious? Should it always have been obvious? Maybe you can make that argument, but it, it it'd be is nice if it was. Step. But that, you know, it wasn't, it just wasn't the case in the 90s, certainly. I mean, it's barely the case now, you know, never mind all the, we still have problems with it that we talk about on this show all the time. I, I will, I will jump back into Scream 2 a little bit. I, I got a question for you, because like her, so her acting is brought into this one. Like, I think that's where the franchise is going. It's going an extra layer of meta, where it's going to be a criticism of the film industry, not just of the slasher genre, as we get into three. Mm -hmm. She's an actress at this college. It's a triggering performance. Was she hallucinating, or was Ghostface actually in that group? Was it Debbie in that regard? Do you have anything on this? There's... there's, It's long been one of the sticking points. That scene... Like, how is Ghostface there? The scene in Scream 1, like, is it really Billy or Stu actually in Ghostface in the middle of the day walking the aisles of the superstore in a packed grocery store like we Hmm. see in the reflection of the ice? There's a couple things that just, you know, don't make sense, and that's why they're... That's why it's a horror movie, right? (laughs) I've always chalked that up. I... I just don't want to acknowledge it, honestly, because like, it's it's such a sore thumb. I, I want to tell myself it's a hallucination, but I don't believe that because you see the character, you see Ghostface exit off the stage. Dart off the screen yeah. quickly. And to me, it has to be Mickey because Mickey knows his way around that stage and Mickey was okay. supposed to be there to pick up. Uh, there's that conversation between Derek and Sydney about where's Mickey. I thought he was going to pick me up and then Derek says they switched. So I think Mickey was there anyway because he's not accounted for otherwise. But, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, there's it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. And how could that, you know, you're going to tell me that that's actually going on in real time and nobody on the stage production is accounting for, wait a minute, is there one extra body there? And why is that mask so black and white when everything else is gray? And, hey, is that a real knife? Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think it's poor. 
I do think they had a lot of balls in the air with Scream 2's script. It almost reminds me of Rogue One and how that could have gone in many different directions and how they kind of filmed more than they needed to. And yeah, I think uh, I think they got cornered into having that scene because the finale had, as you write down here, Chekhov stage production, which I appreciate. And that scene, (laughs) that scene alone, you can tell when you listen to the director commentary, it meant a lot to Wes Craven. Because, and this is how you can tell he cares about the horror genre. I mean, to hear him discuss the horror genre and its ties going all the way back to the Greeks, and David Warner is the professor there who's a character actor that Craven said he loves playing the old professor, then you do have have to set up Chekhov stage production with all the things going on there, so you have to put Sidney on the stage at some point because you have to show the effects. Never mind the fact that Craven said he always wanted to, he was delighted at the fact that he was able to simulate fire on a stage by having cellophane being blown by a fan and he always wanted to try it. So he was happy to have the opportunity to hear, (laughs) you know, I mean, is it enough to overcome the inexplicableness of (laughs) how the hell does Ghostface make an appearance in that scene? Not for me, but okay, it's fine. I think, but I think you have to have that scene to establish yeah, the whole theater, and you can't get get around it. So I agree. I I, I will say I, I enjoyed looking back at these plot, these cast structures, and say that Mickey as a killer is kind of going that same route as Stu as the killer, right? In that similar role in the cast, opposite Randy, especially during the movie theater you know, uh, film classes, and then you keep that as the killer keep that as the second killer right so the Shouldn't fact it that have been randy then well randy was i think influential on the plot or influential on the audience and i do think they made choices with the audience in mind i agree because they didn't have they didn't have the same focus of the impactful reveal right because whatever debbie and Mickey brought to the table as killers, it wasn't going to have the same emotional impact as Billy. Just like Stu didn't really have that much of emotional impact. Stu was kind of the third-level character, second-level character, rather. Mickey's a third-level character. Yeah, but if you're going to... My point, I guess, is if you're going to have one of the killers be this guy who's snapped mentally and is obsessed with having the movies as a defense and gaining fame off it because of all everything he knows about horror movies and history and all that and the genre... Yeah. I mean, that's Randy. That's Randy. Yeah, what I'm trying to say is, yeah, you're right. Randy would have had more emotional impact. But if it can't be Randy, let it be Mickey. And if you're spreading out more emotional impact because this is more of a theme park movie in in, in many ways. Then kill Randy. that crowd pleaser. Then you have... You have a big scene with Randy. You have a Gale and Dewey have ratcheted up stakes, so you're more emotional about them. And then you're, yeah, you're still emotional about Sydney surviving. I think it's more important that Sydney survives than it is important that we feel for the killer who dies later on. And thank God for the rewrite, because otherwise Sydney wouldn't have survived. And instead, we get Sydney. I mean, talk about an evolution. A girl who's scared of everything, despite her uber athleticism and uber awareness of the situation in one, to this. I mean, she's a cold-blooded killer at the end of Scream 2. She puts a bullet right in Debbie Salt's head with no regard or remorse whatsoever and well, just do it. You could kind of call it self-defense, though, I would say. Not that, not the gunshot to the skull! <laughs> yeah, but... The gunshot to the... The woman's lying there. If she's alive, it's not for much longer anyway. 
Yeah, but you know the killer's going to come back to life for one final scare, though, Mike. And Sydney goes, just in case. <laughs> uh, they didn't have it. They didn't have anybody filming that, right? It's not screen four yet. Okay. Uh, next segment, I should have came up with a better name, but it is what it is now. I have some oozing to do, which is uh, Dewey. I am uh, very, I am very. Despite the uh, naming of the segment, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts because you go into some deep characteristic detail to the point where I'm like, yeah, I think you nail it in a lot of a lot of ways about Dewey and Gale here. Yeah, I want to talk about Dewey and Gale, and uh, I, I have a question to start out with though because sure. I'm not entirely sure. I watched a bunch of making of stuff. I watched the whole hour and a half thing that they had from like the '90s, the making of Scream One. But what exactly do you know about Dewey's original character? Because I, I got a couple of caveats here. Because A, I know Dewey was supposed to be like this meathead sheriff yes. who, who's like dumb. B, I knew David Arquette was cast as one of the kids. Because, of course, he's 25 and he's of age for a kid in a movie. Right, no, naturally. but he was cast. I don't know if it I was think he was going to be Evan Hansen. I don't know if it was Stuhl or Randy or somebody else, or was he the brother character to Rose McGowan? He was a bumbling nerd role like a Randy. Was he an amalgamation? What do you know about this? Because three, David Arquette basically said to Wes Craven, he's like, I want the role where I'm kissing Courtney Cox, his future wife and mother of his, (laughs) of his, his one child. So he took, he, he changed roles kind of like Drew Barrymore, which surprised Wes Craven. Yeah, I, I unfortunately not much about it other than what kind of you said. I'm trying to rack my brain. This is all off the top of my head, so I could be completely wrong. I think he was going to go for the Billy role, and he didn't get it. And uh, the reason Skeet Ulrich got that is because he, oddly enough, because Heart of his striking, well, yeah. and his striking resemblance to Johnny Depp and Wes Craven's use of Johnny Depp in the original Nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. So other than that, I don't remember off the top of my head, other than Wes's affinity for when he auditioned David in the Dewey role and he said, yeah, I know this was supposed to be this meathead guy, but David brought some kind of authenticity and some realism to it and some charm that I thought was invaluable. So that's how he ended up getting cast uh, finally as Dewey. And it's another ironic joke because, yeah, I mean, he's tall, but he's not like this imposing guy. And she's right. like, oh, do you work out? And he takes this as, I mean, he's such the beta male, which is the audience surrogate. We all are, are Dewey in many ways. Right. To where, like, no, we're not given the respect we deserve. And there's just, there's so much built in that he he kind of fused these whatever characters he was going to play into the role of Dewey to the point where he acts himself into the role of a lifetime because he wasn't supposed to survive here. And you lose something if like Patrick Warburton is, you know, the big hulking guy that actually makes an appearance in screen three that has scenes with Dewey. Like if that's Dewey, you lose kind of the dynamic between affable Dewey and, and I'm going to wear this hard nosed reporter woman down with my love and, and charm. Gale. No, but you're a hundred percent. I think this this deputy was supposed to be like a thirty something year old white guy played by a forty something year old white yeah. guy in the original, and and Craven was shocked because they're always about the representation in terms of white ages. Like this had to be like we need a forty <laughs> we need forty year old Caucasians to right. identify. This is we've been this is why we're not a retrospective podcast. But still, <laughs> I'm glad that they went this route with uh, David Arquette taking on the role because now you get. 
instead of just like Courtney Cox being attracted to a beefcake or a faux beefcake character that they were going to satirize, I think Kevin Williamson was going to satirize, you have this another layer of, all right, we ha- we re- relate to Dewey because he's walking into this relationship with Gail, who we know is going to eat him alive, <laughs> right? Yeah, but so the, the geek gets the girl. It just wasn't Randy. But you know? the geek shouldn't get this girl because right. this girl is going to just, you know, she she's a, she's a battle axe. She's right. a buzzsaw. And we're almost trying to say, don't do it, Dewey, <laughs> during the movie. And it just gives, like, a nerd, a redemption arc, but this another layer to the redemption arc because he shouldn't get it. And, of course, it almost gets him killed, and he comedically survives twice. Uh, but it also, you know, in another refreshing move, it gives... Gail, this alpha female redemption arc of her own because she cares for the beta male. She cares for Dewey to the point where she stops being such an opportunist, just waiting in the wings, trying to film the story. She becomes part of the story and she saves Sydney and she saves, you know, the day. Yeah. And I hated the retcon between one and two when I was a teenager. I hated that they made Gail this, they retract. Like, she went from saving the day for everyone in one to they're retracking her as, like, this reporter first, the news matters, I want to be the news, I want to, you know, blah, 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 I am the story type character in Scream 2. But it made so much sense now when you look at it. Like, when I'm studying this as an adult, like, of course, that's what that character is going to do. She would be put, like, I don't care that I saved your life, there's money to be made, and there's a story to be told, and I need to be the one to tell it before somebody else does. They were true to these characters through the entire series and even if the characters changed for a time they regress like they did and and mm-hmm. that's okay because that's real life and that's people what people kinda, do yeah <laughs> that's what people do all the time they they go backwards change so they, is fucking hard <laughs> of course it to is do it. yeah so gail is always going to be gail and it, yes she tries to change for dewey but still she's still gail so right. th- like she is literally this weathered morally compromised tabloid opportunist who is never going to change, but she does discover real journalism the hard way. And her intrusiveness, it's like this perfect combination that it, it puts her it puts her in harm's way, but it ultimately she is softened up by Dewey to where in our eyes she is redeemed. Mm-hmm. And like you said, she's got the reverse arc now. She actually is put into a position where she could be considered victimized in the second movie. And she still rises above that, and she still, you know, go, ta- makes the decision to go towards something more idyllic. It, it, it just her principles, right? I mean, again, I mean, action, non-action. She's she's a badass in both. She's a good person. She but may yeah, be chaotic. She, to, she may be chaotic. Good on the Matrix there, but she's good. Right. So it's never her problem. Put a gun in her hands. She'll pull the trigger. She'll do what needs to be done. What her problem is, is she's got to get away from the book deal and she's got to get away and go towards the small town sheriff. And that's the whole, the whole different dilemma for her. And they keep, they keep pulling at that tension all the way through Scream 4, which we're going to talk. I mean, when, when Sydney becomes the more famous author, the hotter author at the time, and Gail kind of has trouble dealing with it. Like that's, that's a tension that's going to stay throughout the series. Uh, And then they, David Arquette and Courtney Cox broke up in real life. And that's why I don't believe in love. And it's great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I missed that last line. I was was Hmm? jumping into more gushing. (laughs) What? Yeah, no, you're right. That definitely is going to throw a wrench into this, but I do. It look, it doesn't look like, it doesn't look like they're together. 
So that's going to be, you know, that that's going to. I think she's dying. I know so I shouldn't think, say that yet, but I think she's. I don't think she's in many scenes. I I I think you may you might be right, uh, but I also think uh, I also think Dewey is in trouble for the. Same I think reasons. look, all three of them could be. I mean, we'll 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 get to it. We'll get there. All right, two more quick points though, because mm-hmm. I do think both characters get what they deserve in these screenplays, which again endears us as audience members to them all the more. Like Gail is humbled. She's such an alpha. She is humbled throughout the first screenplay, and Dewey is actually encouraged and he finds his courage. He, he never needed to find his courage because he always had it, but he's validated finally for his courage. And even, even if it's a, in a bit of a martyrdom kind of role, I would say Gail's humbled in both screenplays, but yeah, yeah. you're out. You're absolutely right. But we're kind of still waiting for the hero's parade for Dewey, I would say, because he's been through the ringer. I I, I, I want that moment somehow. Him living. Well, coming. this is another case of everything going wrong for Scream still going right, because he was to die in the first movie. That's why he right. was so brutally attacked, is that he was dead. And the only reason that Dewey is able to come through when we have that shot of him being alive at the end of Scream 1 is because Wes Craven had time on set one day in, like, 1996 and was like, hey, just in case... Let's get one more shot where David lives and he's coming out of the house on a stretcher and he's alive because originally Williamson's original treatment for Scream 2, Dewey wasn't there. There was no role for Dewey because he was dead. And so midway through filming, they started batting this idea around as to whether or not he should live. And so just as like a just in case and let's just use it if we need it, Craven said, all right, we'll reshoot one where he's alive. But I think it's so important to have a Han and Leia of this cast structure for the franchise is Han and Leia in, in Star Wars, or whether it's Loomis and in, in Halloween. I mean, they they kind of crystallize a lot of the themes sure. of these movies. And Loomis is that dictator where he's just spitting it out at us in the Halloween. Michael, he is pure able. I've done the voice before. I I won't do it again. I'm not good at voices lately. But you have the cleansing, wrathful gods. Uh, of the slasher genre in the 1980s who like old testament you know deities basically condemn characters and the and so a new slasher movie it should be a cast full of the condemned and it shows us why they are condemned and then it kills them for that but instead this new cast structure for this new you know set of slasher films is about the audience relating to these characters. It's about catharsis for each one of these characters. And instead of touchstones that are condemned, they are condemning the genre and what's been done wrong in the past. So he uses these, the, the, he uses every cast member ultimately. And it's like you said, it's not just Williamson because Williamson had the script that was going one way, but ultimately together with Craven, they pulled out this overall criticism of the genre and took it to the next level from the script. And in, to have one of the OGs of the genre wanting to get away from his previous work was essential to this. Wes yeah. Craven didn't want to do another slasher movie for these reasons, right? He didn't want to just kill teenage girls in his films. He wanted to make, he wanted to rip apart those conventions, which is so refreshing. He wanted to make more music of the heart, which is mm-hmm. the fact that he was the helm of that page. It blows my yeah. mind still. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, great points by you, but let's move on and let's play a game, Mike. 
<laughs> We're going to do this in a relatively quick fashion, but just uh, there's a lot of controversy online and on Reddit and on YouTube between who killed who. I'm going to give it my best interpretation, but I want you to answer who killed who. So let's uh, let's go in order here with a couple of the deaths from Scream 1. Uh, Mike, who specifically killed Steve, the boyfriend? Oh, Steve. Oh, yeah. so you think two killers are in that scene. Damn it. I, uh, I assume that it was the same killer because Matthew Lillard says I didn't kill anybody in the in the next scene or later on there mm-hmm. and, and it looked like Billy was just you know devil-eyed and he was devil-eyed that whole act one so I thought it was just Billy killing Casey and Steve the boyfriend who I just learned if, I, if you you could have gave me a thousand guesses <laughs> of his name uh, I believe it was Stu who actually gutted uh, Steve. But I believe the actual killing of, and this seems to be pretty well established, is the actual killing of Casey was uh, Billy. So we'll, right, we'll, so I'm we'll right. call you one so for Skeet, one. There. One for two there. Right, so I'm one for two, but I didn't know it was, I didn't know it was two separate. I thought it was just one guy there. No, but yeah, that makes more sense. Definitely the two guy. Definitely the two killers there. Uh, who killed the principal, Principal Fonzie? Ugh, this is uh, I, I'm not very sure about this. I'm guessing Stu. It's Billy. It was actually uh, Billy. I think that's pretty well established, too, because Stu uh, was on his way back to his house. But then you ask the question, and this is where it gets a little hazy for me. It's like, okay. was there really a ghost face there spying on Nev Campbell and, and Tatum's discussion in the woods? Was there really a ghost face that was actually one of them in the supermarket when they were there? Eh, we'll see. I don't like thinking about it too much. It makes my head hurt. Yeah, the attempted murders, it's it's harder to figure out. But, I mean, there are YouTube videos for these murders. Are you getting are you getting these definitive answers off the YouTube videos or just your context clues? Am I, who am I dealing with again? I don't think that's important. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it's a combination. Look, I've seen a lot of YouTube videos. I've read a lot of stuff off Reddit. I'm dealing with a combination of what I can put together from there. So if I'm are wrong... Are you even looking at your Google document or just doing this all from memory? <laughs> That's the fear that I have on this side of the telephone. Who killed Tatum, Mike? All right, Tatum. Stu says, I'll be right back before that, or no? I think that's after that. I think it's after Tatum is dead already. But Billy's getting it on upstairs. Mm -mm. He has not come through the front door yet. All right, so it is Billy. I had Stu written down here. Everybody knows I did not cheat, at least. (laughs) This is one I disagree with, uh, based on what's online. Who killed Kenny the cameraman? All right. Well, Stu says, I'll be right back, and then <laughs> Billy's having sex. So it has to be Stu, right? It is. Online says Stu as well. I think it's Billy. But because Billy, Billy is upstairs at Coitus. Okay, so you're I mean, belief- teenagers have sex for like 90 seconds, so right, good but, for them, but whatever, but it's a fine, well, maybe right you're after, right. Right after they have sex, Stu comes in and stabs <laughs> Billy, right? Oh, yeah. So, well, it's right believe- after? Yeah, well, well, yeah, that's when I I guess mean, so. they finish up and, and Sydney's asking him about the phone call that he made. So are we to believe that Billy was just laying on the bed the entire time throughout the chase outside the house, the police car... Kenneth's death, Stu alone put Kenneth's body on top of the news van, like, and Billy's just laying on the bed the whole time? I don't believe that. I don't know. That's a good point, but if he's committed to the performance, 
within he's the just performance. Laying there <laughs> Poor Stu. Stu would be sweating bullets by the time he got back in the house. You're right. Stu's <laughs> having to do too much in scene 118. That's a long ass scene. Uh, all right. Here's a layup. Who kills Billy? Yeah, well, fake kills Billy. Oh, no, at the end. Yeah, uh, no, who stabs him? Oh, who fake kills Billy? No, who kill who 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 stabs him with the umbrella? I'm giving you a gimme. You just I but here's the thing. I watched three more movies after this. I don't remember <laughs> who, who who actually holds wields the umbrella. The fucking penguin. Burgess Meredith. <laughs> who does it? I don't know. That's correct. Burgess it, no, kills it, Billy. It, it's got to be Sydney, right? Because she yes. had the. Yes, it is Sydney. All right, thanks. <laughs> uh, that might have been your best. I joke. didn't write that down. That might have 18- been the best joke you've ever made. <laughs> we'll go to Scream Two. Just frighten me into being funny. That's that's, that's gonna get talk. I'll have a worse percentage for that than I just did in that game. Uh, Omar Epps, Phil Stevens, through the bathroom door. Oh, God. I'm thinking it's Mickey. Yes. All right. Uh, how about Maureen Evans, Jada Pinkett's character? Jada Pinkett's... Oh, you... Oh, so you, uh, damn it. So, again... I'm, I'm just asking a question. I, I wrote down Mickey did them both, yes. but I, I... Yes. Yes? Correct. Okay. It well, is I was Mickey just going to change my answer. I'm, I appreciate you. For uh, there is, although there is a question as to whether both Mickey and Debbie Salt were in the... Uh, other stall because Mickey's got to get his voice pretty fucking high to make to mimic those noises that Omar Epps was listening to. Good point. It's he she's Black Christmas mumbling mm. in that scene. Mm. Yeah. Uh, C.C. Cooper, Sarah Michelle Geller's character. He throws her off the roof. Yeah, it's got to be Mickey. Has to be Mickey. I agree. Uh, Randy, this is a layup. Uh, Randy was Debbie because he was on the phone talking shit about Billy. Yes. Correct. I think you're you're 100 so far. Um, how about the two officers that were tasked with protecting Sydney and driving her to an undisclosed location? I'd like to phone a friend. <laughs> uh, no, like it's a 90s. Two, Jesus, I, the, the, how did we go this far in the podcast and not reference how to how to be a millionaire? Uh, <laughs> Who wants to be a millionaire? All right. Uh, head wound Mickey, I'm guessing. Yes. But she was also in the phone booth. But all right. Head, head wound yes. Mickey is what I wrote down. Mickey killed the two officers. Okay. This one, I'm I, I'm assuming it was also Mickey. But do you assume that Hallie was also killed by the same ghost face that killed the two officers? Oh, that's a good point. But I... Yeah, that, that actually could be Debbie. So you don't have a definitive answer on this. Well, I... So, Every, the the everyone's pretty well established that it's Mickey. I just wonder if it the timeline would have been possible for Debbie to be at that crash site. Sydney runs off to the campus, is being chased by Ghostface. Debbie giving chase could have taken off her Ghostface apparel, thrown it in the woods somewhere, and then stood by the phone waiting for Mickey. No. I think they would. In reality, they would had to have worked more in tandem. And lured Sydney to 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 a spot. Plus, the whole thing with Debbie is she wants to be the one to kill Sydney, right? 
Correct. So obviously the movie is structured a certain way, but in her evil plan, she ultimately wants the showdown with Sydney. So if she's not nearby, like if he's if she if Sydney's at his mercy, she should be the one. But then again, I mean, she's unable to get to the plot. Well, the I spot. saw I saw one explanation yeah. that said that she was standing by the phone talking to Mickey. And it was Mickey dialing her from the crash site saying that Sydney was still alive. But I agree with you. I don't think Debbie would have wanted Mickey to kill Sydney. Right. I, I think this is kind of where the plot has a hole in a way because they wanted this great sequence and they make it just believable enough. But you might be right. I mean, we, we probably could rationalize it away. I, uh, rationalization powers are very strong. You did very uh, well. You did very, very well on screen, screen two. two. I did very yeah. well. Yeah. All right. All right. Good job by you. Wow, I th- I I feel a little better. <laughs> failing, but if I win, I I I get I I die. If I lose, I die. Well, correct. Yeah, you answer okay. it right. You die. <laughs> um, we're in the home stretch here. Only a couple more uh, more lighthearted and and fun categories where we're going to talk about how Scream and Scream Two were very '90s, and it's going to be a segment called "It Was Jennifer Aniston's Body." <laughs> Yes. Uh, next week we'll talk, or next episode we'll talk about the aughts, but now we're talking about 90s. And Billy's hair, Michael, yeah. the hair was so 90s, but Billy had that hairstyle my Brillo head could never pull off. That Johnny Depp Ulrich, yeah. Johnny Depp, thank you. Boy Meets World, Joey mm-hmm. Lawrence yep. of the 90s, even though he had the much fuller version of it, had that tween teen kind of just little wings over the eyebrows it's so funny that the first three comments we have are all hair related because i put Mm -hmm. drew barrymore's hair as well which that has to be a wig i can't believe (laughs) she actually went around with that bob of a bob for for any prolonged period but yeah there drew barrymore's hair johnny depp ulrich his hair there and gail's hair as well gail's hair Reminded me of what I just rewatched in Spencer with yeah. Kristen Stewart playing Princess Diana in the 1990s, early 90s or late 80s, in fact, where it's kind of it's not like the bangs that are gelled to the side necessarily like Kristen Stewart as Diana, mm-hmm. but the bangs are down and the hair is mostly straight on the outside. But there's definitely like this part in front. There's an, uh, there's an underrated genius to you calling this it was Jennifer Aniston's body and us talking so much about the hair because as influential as the Rachel haircut was on right. the 90s and early 2000s, Courtney Cox's hair in each one of the Scream movies is like a, its own mini time capsule, and I don't it think is. it gets talked about enough. Uh, she should just be proud. Her hair, <laughs> her, no, more importantly, her Mua's uh, crew, <laughs> yeah, her, her makeup and hairstylist should be, I be prouder. Yeah. yeah. How about the cool kids sitting by the fountain after school? With so one do you think that wheel? was more influenced by friends or was it more influenced by party of five? <laughs> Every save by the, but like everybody who watched as a tween or as a pre-tween or as a kid going into the nineties from the eighties saw that image so often on every sitcom, never mm-hmm. mind in real life because they're not on their phones they're not they're out there mingling after school like that was a thing because it was it was in fact a thing i remember kids mingling outside of the high school like they don't do that anymore now we weren't allowed to right we were i mean we were never allowed to i always thought like watching all these california portrayals or portrayals i guess of california high schools throughout entertainment it's like you eat lunch outside you congregate outside we never had that 
We never needed that, though. We'd go home and get on AOL Instant Messenger <laughs> and our, our phones, etc. Find serial killers to co-mingle with and avenge our dead sons' lives with, yeah. But these 80s, you know, students uh, writing these movies for the 90s, that's, of course, what they did, and that's what we see here. So, so 90s. Uh, soundtrack, so 90s. Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, that's from 1994, the song Red Right Hand. Jeez. We have Moby. Moby is the only other name I recognize in the OG soundtrack there. Whisper to a Scream, which is what plays during the trailer. I've listened to that song. I mean, it's so 90s, but I've listened to that song way more than I'd like to admit. But mm. <laughs> it's, uh, it is funny to see the difference in soundtrack between Scream 1, which was this little movie that could, and Scream 2, which was this legitimate blockbuster that was yeah. produced to make money. And like, look at the names that are on the Scream 2 soundtrack. And it's like Foo Fighters, Dave Matthews Band. It's like exactly. all these big names. Um, I also like the, uh, the hiding in plain sight joke of having a slowed down cover of don't fear the reaper playing while Billy and Sydney do the over the pants, like fooling around. They do early in the movie when we're being introduced to their characters. That was a nice touch. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Ominous touches to setting up the setup. And how about the nineties fight of Wes Craven versus the MPAA for the original cut of this movie? Because like. Look, I get in a vacuum the shadowy entrails hanging out of Casey and Steve or, like, the shot where Ghostface catches up with Drew Barrymore and stabs her in the chest. I get those being, in a vacuum, tough to deal with and tough to swallow by the MPAA. And Wes talked about how they had fights all the time going back and forth. And they're still gruesome images, even today. They're still jarring and still memorable. But the MPAA wanted to forever label this movie an NC-17 instead of an R. But let's try this, like... Think of all those shots, right? The knife, the retractable blade going into Drew Barrymore's chest and the the entrails and her hanging by the tree and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Think of those shots. Now think of what happens to the daughter in the movie Hereditary. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What a difference a couple decades make. If those shots were in 2022 movies, does the MPAA, is it a PG-13 movie maybe? (laughs) It's just like Milton with his stapler running the MPAA now. Just like a, th- a stapler, you know, from office. Uh, right. The MPAA lost their fight. They lost their fight. They lost their battle. And but this is this encapsulates that time period, the mid '90s. Sure. This was when you know Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky Clinton, the, all the value arguments, all the. I mean, it, it, it's coming off the heels of the Satanic Panic. Yeah, Tipper it's, Gore talking about how Mortal Kombat exactly. turns. Yeah, it's, it's entertainment was. And it, it, don't make no mistake, Wes Craven was honing in on that fact. I mean, the the subtext yeah. is all over about how horror movies are digested, like we've been talking about. And he was, if not P.E. number one, he was P.E., you know, in the top ten there, yeah. Public Enemy. Uh, Scream 2, the technology is kind of funny because they're really, so good. they're really shouting it out like it's so, so cool and so new. Star 69, <laughs> his ass. Sydney's got caller ID. It's like this big thing written into the plot. Uh, and then the name drops, like Johnny Cochran could represent mm-hmm. me. Bob Dole would be in on the witness stand for the same reasons we just discussed with the value arguments of movies and violence in movies that Mickey spouts at the end there, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. And the technology, again, like the bulky cell phones that are supposed <laughs> to be new and cutting edge. Camcorders just existing. Yep. <laughs> Big deal. You don't see those anymore. They still got to go to the, you know, the film school to find a working VCR to find (laughs) some audio. Like the whole, the catacombs Uh of the soundproofed 
radio station there for the kids to re- a recording station in the film school was pretty funny. Yeah. You have this whole building dedicated <laughs> for these filmmaking and they don't have half the technology we have on our phones right now. But you're right. You said before the soundtrack uh, Foo Fighters, Dave Matthews Band. But can I add Master P, Sugar Ray, and D'Angelo for Christ's sake, who My has God. Prince on that track? My God, Master P and the No Limit Soldiers. Hootie who, hootie who, indeed. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> I remember that screen, that 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 soundtrack. That I, you know, I, even before I seen the movie, I, I knew about that soundtrack. I was listening to that soundtrack. All right, we got two quick segments as we do in every episode. More best scenes, more worst scenes. I'm getting a little woozy here. <laughs> Oh my God, John Travolta impersonation. Uh, This guy is a terrible actor. Just awful. I disagree wholeheartedly. You're not going to pull this shit over my eyes. Uh, he's always been a terrible actor. I think he's adorable. Oh, and wait I a love minute. The man. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He should have Matthew won the Lillard. Oh, no. Matthew Lillard. Okay. Matthew Lillard. I thought you were talking about. Uh, I thought you were talking about Henry Winkler. Look, Matthew Lillard was actually in some Emmy contention a couple years back, right? I mean, it was like he had a couple scenes in a big TV show. I forget where where they were like, all right, he he needs to be back in contention. So the, I, I this is a fact that I, I dis, people disagree with me right now. He's so over the top. I disagree. He's, what the hell is he thinking sometimes? I, I, but that's that that character is a tightrope between sane and just maniacal the entire movie until he finally loses it. He uh, finally loses it. Is that <laughs> something you just said to me? He had he was spitting in people's faces. I loved one. it. I loved it. <laughs> he was nuts. It, it was uh, entertaining. Let's put it this way. But I'm surprised you, this you didn't the, delete my tweet. This is a seasonal. About it now. This is a seasonal argument you and I had. We just had it. House of Gucci <laughs> to to one of our best episodes of the year. So here we go again. Uh, Principal Fonzie like cups a girl's chin, <laughs> Sydney's chin for that matter, and then like he gets himself locked up. Never mind fired <laughs> when he expels those two kids. Like, he threatens their lives. Here's the quote. Yeah. Uh, you make me so sick. Your entire havoc-inducing, thieving, thieving whoring generation <laughs> disgusts me. Like, right there. You talk like that to a kid, you're dead. But then he, like, he has, uh, we should string you up and hang you from a tree. Expose your heartless, desensitized uh, little shits that you are. <laughs> you can't speak to kids that way, especially two, two kids you're going to expel who are immediately going to uh... complain to their parents about it. You're going to court. It was a simpler time. <laughs> Is that what people mean when they say they want like the good old days back? <laughs> I sure as shit hope not. What is wrong? Like, I get it. It's a fantasy principle. I mean, they were oh. setting him up to still be a suspect in the whodunit aspect, but you're Character right. Character assassination. Yeah. yeah. Axe to grind. Makes some sense. We've seen it before. It was. It worked. It was obvious, but it worked. Uh, I just, I'm watching that now working with kids and I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bit much, uh, Gail fat shaming, poor Kenny, poor fat, dead, (laughs) never met a snack. He didn't like cameraman. We're, we're just as guilty as fat shaming. We're fat ourselves, Uh but yeah, love him. Deprecation. Justice for Kenny. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I always thought the phone call at Tatum's house was weird. The one that Stu must have made while Billy was in jail. Yeah. Because, like, logistically, Tatum's mom 
had to have talked to the killer and just went and got Sydney, knowing what Sydney had just been through the previous two days. So what was the conversation like? Hey, can I let Sydney know who's calling? It's like, oh, sure, it's uh, her father, even though she said specifically it's not her father. It had right. to be somebody in a weird voice. And so she goes from that to just, okay, let me say, hey, Sid, yeah. <laughs> murderer on the phone. <laughs> the brains of the operation was definitely Billy, right? <laughs> yes. The charm of the operation yes. was definitely Billy. So I think Billy was on that first call that kept her on the line, right? Oh, he you think having- so? He was relishing it, even though, yeah. Because if you're saying they were both there in the original scenes, and 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 no, no, yeah. no, no, not the not the uh, not the Casey scene, not the Casey scene when when Sydney. After no, I know. Yeah, but it had to be Billy as the main. Yeah, Billy was definitely talking to Casey. Yes, absolutely. Right, Billy was the you and <laughs> in this podcasting duo. Billy was Matthew the host. <laughs> I'm Matthew Lillard, the guy I hate, which is probably why I I hate his acting because I'm him in this relationship. All right. Uh, Dewey is also the worst police officer ever. I mean, maybe this is so 90s as well, but he walks into a high school party and just smiles at all the underage drinking or he just recognizes that they're all in their early 30s. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's probably a red flag against him as as a police officer, I would agree. Uh, I mean, to throw him off the force, perhaps? <laughs> You've solved the biggest murder in this town's history, and also you're fired. <laughs> yeah, in the same way that the only thing fake about the Titanic was the entire love story, the only <laughs> thing bad about the performances in this movie is the acting in Scream 1. Like, the melodrama surrounding Sid's mother's murder is too much for Skeet Ulrich and Nev Campbell to take, I think. I like I think that's just a cringy scene when she's describing how your mother didn't leave. She's not she's not buried somewhere. She just left the family and that's it was it was a bit much, but credit to Williamson yeah. and Craven and Nev Campbell and Ski Holrich for like taking the piss out of that in Scream 2 by having the Tory spelling Luke Wilson redo over. I thought that was hilarious. I totally wholeheartedly agree. The, they they picked the right scene yeah. to satirize in a fu- in the funniest way possible. But that's every scene in Licorice Pizza. So again, I'm a little surprised <laughs> that it was in your top ten at the end of the year. But Mike, uh, you have one more here about a controversy yeah. between Billy and Stu. So I care less about the controversy than I do about again the logistics of what happens because there's a, this huge controversy online over who actually killed Tatum, whether it was Billy or whether it was Stu. And I think the argument is nonsensical because if the timeline is true to life, we go right from Tatum's death to kids leaving the party in the very next scene. And Stu is standing right alongside Sydney, watching people leave his house. And then Billy comes through the front door, having just gotten there. So clearly it seems to be Billy killed Tatum. And we know there's not a huge delay in the timeline because the next scene is Sydney or uh, Courtney Cox getting back to the news van and Kenneth saying you have a delay from the camera you just set up between the time you set up the camera and walk back to the news van. So all of this is happening, bang, bang, bang in real time, which means it had to be Billy who killed Tatum. Here's my problem with that scene. You're telling me there is a dead body hanging from the garage attached the to the house time. and swaths of teens are leaving this party in mass at once and not one of them walks out the front door and looks to their right and is like, that dead body hanging from the garage. <laughs> I will say this: I do think teenagers can get a little tunnel vision having worked with them for <laughs> okay, twelve okay. years. I don't uh, disagree with that. <laughs> I don't even want to know if uh, something else. If they have you know extracurricular activities going on, if they're even less focused 
<laughs> on what they should be focused on or aware of what they should be aware hmm. of. Probably a good point. The, the fact that this screenplay never mentions uh, her again, the, the Rose McGowan character, is absurd. Well, and they, they have the one scene. They have the one scene where, where Sydney like runs into her body. And it's supposed to be this big reveal. But yeah, no, Dewey is never... I don't think Dewey like, mentions her until <laughs> Scream 3. <laughs> why even make Dewey... Yeah. Her brother, <laughs> if you're not going to have Dewey feel bad about his sister dying. Good point. At any point. That got cut for time. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mike, uh, those are screen one oozes. Screen two oozing. <laughs> we we talked about the Cassandra play scene. Not our favorite. Mm-hmm. Hallucination or not. Uh, Cotton was like Scooby, the Scooby-Doo character. Now, we get a lot of fun <laughs> Scooby-Doo characters in the third movie. Mm-hmm. Scooby-Doo settings in yeah. the third movie. Fun. Cotton is that at the film school? Why is he even there? Is why? How is he finding Dewey if he's not either the you know prime suspect or the killer like you were saying before? Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I still he had to have been. I mean, he was the killer at least in the thing that leaked online. But yeah, his some of his actions are quite inexplicable if he's not going to be the character. And I guess you could just say he is that fame hungry and fame driven. But okay. <laughs> Come on, still. Well, speaking of film school scenes, though, we also had Oliphant, Mickey. Mm-hmm. He has a gun at the end of the movie. Like, he had a gun that entire time, but he couldn't get through the uh, the glass. He's just having too much fun chasing down Gale. <laughs> what the hell? Yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's something. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, Kermit McDermott gets shot directly in the heart, and he has time for all those last words later on and is it, as a payoff to the so, gun. So 90s. That also is very 90s. I agree. And uh, it is, it's the same though in Scream Four. I mean, you have somebody's brain being stabbed. That, and yet I hate he's that got scene. time for. I hate that scene. Yeah, he's got time for an audacious last line. Ridiculous. <laughs> I'm now I'm mad thinking about it. I had forgotten about that. I blocked that out of my memory. Um, there's just no explanation as to why Sydney actually goes to the theater at the end of this, other than they well, need the climax of the movie to take place on stage. Does she, I, I thought there was, like, she saw an open lighting. Like, I thought it was Debbie luring her there, but now I don't remember. You're right. Well, the, like, there's music playing. And music like, playing, right. The, the stuff is happening on stage. Like, there's, like, stage design coming down and stuff. But, like, shouldn't she be going to the cops? She just watched two people and her best friend get murdered. Shouldn't she be going to the cops is a great question for those first two <laughs> movies. Just in general. <laughs> no, you're right. Uh, so yeah, Gail and Stewie still alive somehow. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gail is you know we just watched a movie where getting stabbed or shot in the torso usually has more dire consequences for a character. Correct? Gail gets shot. It's just a flesh wound apparently, and then Dewey gets stabbed in the back again yeah. multiple times in two years. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Randy gets shot in the chest, too, or at least the shoulder in Scream 1, and he's fine. Everyone's fine. <laughs> shoulder me becomes something for, for Scream 4. So yeah. thank, thankfully, they kind of do a meta commentary on it. But okay, uh, let's get into some extra bests, just a few, because we've kind of been gushing this whole episode. But I call this segment, he was making a movie called Stabbed. <laughs> he was stabbed. He was stabbed. <laughs> So let's talk. Let's not overlook the obvious is what I'm saying. We have to discuss a few more of the best scenes mm-hmm. and favorite scenes and favorite quotes that we have. And look at 
especially for us, Mike, I think the highlight of these these four movies for me is the scene where Randy is yelling, look behind you, turn around, the big scene 118 showcase. He's watching Halloween for the upteenth time. He's drunk. He's yelling at uh, a character uh, with Michael Myers behind him mm-hmm. while Ghostface is behind him about to stab him, which we're watching on the TV, right, later on through Eddie, or I forget his name already. Eddie? Uh, bah, bah, fuck, I forgot Ca- his name. Cameraman too. Eddie? Kenneth, Kenneth, Kenneth. Ken- Kenny, 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 thank you. They killed Kenny. <laughs> I wonder if that's where it came from. But I loved, I love this as, as the Halloween fans we are from, I mean, the fact that Halloween is, you know, Williamson's favorite movie of all time, the fact that he works it into character names, yeah. right? They're character names based on Halloween character names. Mm-hmm. Later in the series, the cops are named after the Halloween kids or whatever it was. Unbelievable. Yeah, I love that homage. You know, there's all kinds of little touches all throughout this. And as you want to talk about the the obvious stuff you can't get over, I still think Randy's death may be one of the most effective deaths in horror history. I mean, yeah, it's it, I still watch Scream to this day and think, wonder if it's going to be their time because it shows they're not afraid to kill off a major character. And it makes the certain rules meeting with the mentor scene in Scream 3 that much more mm-hmm. impactful and, and so much more fun, which uh, Scream 3 is one of the more fun movies of the franchise. Just pure fun. I, I really enjoyed it, uh, even though it's poppycock, pure, <laughs> utter poppycock for much of it, but that's one of the big highlights, I would say, so teasing that. I I am missing some homages, I'm sure, because I'm not the, the slasher guru you are, but I, I do think the Scream 2... You know, they, they, they were setting it up all Scream 1, or right from the beginning of Scream 1, about Mrs. Voorhees. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you have Mrs. Loomis as the killer, mm-hmm. what a great, that's a juicy payoff. Honestly. Love that. Love that as well. Also love uh, Wes Craven's ability, Kevin Williamson's ability to put characters in confined spaces to the point where, like, yes, the car scene in Scream 2 is, you know, anxiety-inducing. And you can't, you don't even feel safe when you're in the middle of a college quad that's wide open and well lit in the middle of the day because the killer could be anywhere like he was when he pulled Randy into the van and stabbed him to death. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an impactful scene and and you, and and it hurts because you're like, he could have avoided it if he just didn't talk shit about Billy or took one step forward. Yeah. Or one (laughs) step forward. But it, it definitely takes some something out of the series for the third one to a degree. Like, Mickey and Randy have to have those good movie class talk scenes. Like, I don't know. Like, these are so kind of cursory, I would say. I enjoy Randy with the deep cuts at the video store more than I enjoy Randy in the class talking about Aliens and, and, and Terminator 2. But at the time when we're that young, right. it meant so much because I haven't seen all those those major movies. Maybe not. You know, I don't think I saw Aliens at that time. And I was like, oh, my God, I have to see Aliens now. Yeah, and you don't get that self-referential stuff wasn't a thing in movies. You know, you didn't hear them talked about by other characters within their cinematic universes. It was a big deal. Absolutely. And it's just another example of how this screenplay kind of just or these movies turned the whole genre on their head. Um, It's raising the profile. And it was the DVD era, right? It's raising the profile of all the films that led up to it, of all the films that you now have to buy at FYE and rent at Blockbuster. And, you know, if it's turning all the conventions on their head, we got to understand the conventions going in, which is, again, this movie shouts them all out. Yeah, man. I, I 
God, this screenplay they're just great. I think my favorite part, honestly, of either screenplay, which I don't ever hear talked about, is when Randy is giving the rules about the mm-hmm. horror movie in Scream 1. When he says you can't have sex, the entire room reacts and boos him and goes crazy and like, yeah. yeah. But if you watch Stu, Stu does not, Stu has been sex obsessed the entire movie, whether fooling around with Tatum and he says, I've always had a thing for you, Sid, at the end. And like, he's this sex crazed teenager. And yet when Randy says you can't have sex and live, Stu is the only person in that group who gives zero reaction whatsoever. And his eyes are just dead. And it's one of my favorite little touches. I have no idea if it was intentional or on purpose or if it was something that they just didn't catch and decided to leave in the movie. But, man, I think that's... There's so many little touches like that that if you go back and rewatch, whether they're mistakes or not even, you can talk yourself into them being part of the actual universe of what you're watching because this these movies are so loaded with little touches like that to begin with. But that is truly one of my favorite things. And I, I urge anyone to go back and rewatch the rule scene. You can even find it on YouTube and just watch Stu in the crowd of people in the living room. That guy is given a death glare to, to Randy. I will say this for Matthew Lillard. He does a good job as part of the ensemble and, and as part of the overall shot. And he's not just chewing scenery with every reaction shot, he he actually has acting ability. I don't know why when it's his turn to speak, he's got to go so over the top in every single instance. I, I do think it hurt his career with your criticism. It hurt his career, man. If he's better, he should have. You know, he was a he great was shaggy. What do you mean it hurt his career? Uh, <laughs> it's funny that he became shaggy after this. <laughs> I. Uh, Look at I I I would have wanted him to evolve even more so, but I look he was in the awards conversation on the TV side of things, not so long ago, and I'm sure if he does anything on the silver screen here to forthwith, he will be an MMO favorite. You <laughs> didn't like him in the side. Descendants. <laughs> he's not bad in the Descendants. You know what? Look at I mean he's he's he does have ability, and we'll we'll talk about it. But yeah, he's uh he's not subtle. <laughs> We're not going to call him subtle. He's not going to get the actor's actor performance. Subtly, uh, Stu, you should look it up. Yeah. Well, this was a bear of an episode. (laughs) How long did this even go? It did not feel, oh my God, it's two hours. (laughs) Oh my God, just for the first time I clicked, that did not feel like two hours. We just House of Gucci this episode one, Mike. Yeah, we sure did. There was a lot to get through. Uh, We'll try to be quicker and more (laughs) concise dealing with three and four. No No promises. No, we won't. No, no promises won't. whatsoever. Guys, as always, what matters most is uh, your thoughts to us. Did you, because Lord knows you just listened to enough from us about it. But what are your thoughts on Scream 1 and 2? Have you rewatched them recently? Do you have any nuggets that we'd missed that you think are highlights of the movies or lowlights or otherwise? Let us know. Uh, you can leave us those as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything we do here in the MMO Empire on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter. Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com.com and on Reddit. We are available wherever you hear podcasts. If you're listening to us on the Apple Podcast app, if you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, if you appreciate what we do, we would appreciate that from you. Uh, Michael, what are some words of wisdom? And tell the people how there's more Scream on the horizon. We have Scream 3 and 4 in our next episode. We have Scream 5, which will be the weekend after Scream, or probably recording it the weekend of uh, the release there. God, that so movie will we'll have... be good. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, we'll get back to Oscar stuff because we got nominations and we got an award show. Not really an award show, an awards announcement yeah. to discuss in the next two Oscar race checkpoints. Oscar race checkpoint is always our news show, and we work movie reviews into that one. They don't go two hours <laughs> like this one went, but this was this went by fast. This was a joy. I appreciate uh, I appreciate you for forcing me into this. Uh, and uh, I'm glad we're getting it done, this mini-series. We've done a lot of series and mini-series in the past. We've done MMO Does Halloween. We've done The Conjuring franchise. We've gone like on mini-deep dyes and something like Suspiria in, mm. in our horror movie watching past. We've, we've done a lot of slasher films. You're still trying to convince me to do more. Uh, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm hesitant to do more franchises, <laughs> but I, I'm glad we're doing this one. This was a must, an MMO must to do yeah. the Scream miniseries. Yeah, I agree. I'm happy we're doing this, too. Uh, thank you for indulging me, good sir, and coming along for the ride and putting in all the valuable input you did today. Uh, guys, when reality sucks, you can come visit Woodsboro with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season and slasher season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See ya. Sydney, remember me? What do you want? It's time, girlfriend. Don't you know history repeats itself? 